So back in December 2001, the first Lord of the Rings movie was released, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I remember being there on opening day. I went and saw it Friday at noon by myself, as any good introvert would. And I loved it. So, of course, I'm telling all my friends they need to go see it too. One of my friends went and saw the movie, but then he came back telling me how disappointed he was in it. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I didn't like the ending. It didn't, didn't really even have an ending at all. It just kind of stopped. What's that all about? And I said, dude, it's three books. It's three movies. That wasn't the end. The story keeps on going. He'd, he had no idea. Don't, don't mess with a nerd, by the way. <laughs> when it comes to details or quotes, well, that's, you get me angry, man. I'm messing with my Lord of the Rings. Um, y'all, today at Harvest Church, we, we're going to open up the book of Acts. And since we plan to spend the whole year surveying this whole book, I want to give us some essential perspective on this book as we start. Acts was written by Luke as a necessary continuation of the gospel story. Now, we may tend to think of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as kind of self-contained narratives that exist on their own. We've got the whole story of Jesus right there. We've got his birth, his life, his ministry and teaching, and most notably his death and his resurrection in the Gospels, the end. But that's not what the Bible is actually showing us here as we open up to Acts. What we discover when we open this book is that, in fact, we've only just begun. The application of Jesus' teaching, the spread of the Gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, the fulfillment of God's promises, the hope of the world, all that and much more right here in these 28 chapters that follow and accompany the gospel. And y'all, what's amazing about Acts is that Jesus is physically absent from most of this book. And we're going to see why today. But what we find in Jesus's physical absence is actually a more powerful and widespread ministry than anything we see in the Gospels, which is not at all what we would expect, but that's all explained here today in these first few verses that we'll see together. And, you know, the last thing I want to say before we enter into the text is that the book of Acts is, for us, extremely relevant. This book explains how we got here. How on earth did the gospel message, think about this, how did the gospel message get from Jerusalem then to central Mississippi now? The internet has only been around so long. How in the world did we end up here? Harvest Church, how did we get here? Acts is the book that answers that question. But it doesn't just show us how we got here. Acts also tells us why we are here. What has God put us here to be and to do? And again, this book will answer that question for us resolutely and very clearly. And so I want to go ahead and say this out loud for the sake of uh, our, our own sense of purpose this year and also for accountability. I'm hopeful that in our study of this book that we will not only be enlivened by the Holy Spirit, but that we as a church would be transformed, starting with me, 
What we're going to read, beginning today, has the power to change our lives and our church and our community and the world, and only by God's grace will it happen. But we need to pray that it would. Starting with me, I want to be different. And so let's dig in. This is Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And this is a scripture that just kind of breaks very nicely into three smaller parts. And so here's how I want to handle this together. I'm going to give us a little outline up front. First, we see a concrete witness, then an audacious promise, and then finally, an ascending purpose. Here in this scripture, a concrete witness, an audacious promise, and finally, an ascending purpose. So beginning with concrete witness, y'all, the author of this book is a man named Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel of Luke, and he makes reference to this right away. Look at verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, we don't know for sure who Theophilus is, if that's an individual with that name, or if, because Theophilus means beloved of God. Luke could be talking to a group of people or a church that he gives this name to. We don't really know. Whoever the receiver of this document is, but here's what's clear. Luke intends for this book to serve as a companion to his gospel. So if the gospel of Luke is part one, then Acts is the necessary part two. It's the continuation of the story. And here's a little clue to how we should view this whole book. It's in verse 1. Luke refers to his gospel as the account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The gospel is what Jesus began to do. And the clear implication is that what we're going to read in Acts is what Jesus continues to do. The beginning of his ministry did not end at his death and resurrection and ascension, but it goes on through his people now and through the building of the church. This is Jesus' ministry continued. This is a book about Jesus, even though he is, as we'll see, he's mostly physically absent. He's present at every turn. Now look at verse 3. To these, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Luke begins this book by reminding us of who Jesus is. Most essentially, Jesus is the suffering Savior who rose from the dead. Verse 3, after his suffering and rising, and the disciples that he chose, who he now calls his apostles, apostle means sent out one. They're going to carry this message of his death and his resurrection. And so notice what we just read. Luke says, they not only saw Jesus alive after he rose, but by many convincing proofs, they spent 40 additional 
days with him, continuing to learn from the risen Christ. And this is the concrete witness on which this whole book is, be- is built. Y'all, it, it's not an exaggeration to say this. The entire weight of the apostles' ministry, the entire weight of our faith and hope, is the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the apostles did not shy away from this. They were very bold and upfront about it. Their ministry was built on the concrete witness that they had actually met with the risen Jesus. It's featured all throughout this book as they make proclamation to those who have never heard of Christ and to those who would persecute them in the name of Christ for, their, for, for the sake of the gospel. It's, they're always pointing back to the resurrection and their experience of the living Christ. A, a little cheating ahead here, in chapter 4, there's a place where the disciples are being uh, persecuted for sharing the, their faith. And in response to the persecution, they make this amazing claim. They say, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that's interesting. They didn't say, we can't help but talk about what we believe. No, we must speak of what we've seen, what we've heard. We saw him alive. And so y'all, I've heard the, the late Tim Keller say this many times. Don't come to Christianity because it's comforting or inspiring or helpful. Come to Christianity because it's true. Then, of course, we'll find it to be very satisfying, very helpful, comforting, inspiring, all of those things. But it's none of those things if Jesus isn't alive, if he hasn't really risen from the grave. And it's on this truth that the apostles staked everything, all of their life and ministry, everything. It's the concrete witness of a risen Christ. And it's in the course of their experience with the risen Jesus that he makes for them and to them an audacious promise, not just a concrete witness, but an audacious promise. We saw it already in verse 5, the promise that not many days from now, Jesus says, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so now look at verse 6 here. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, seasons, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So the the apostles were not terribly clear on what Jesus' next step was going to be. What's the plan here? They didn't know. They thought perhaps that the resurrection of Jesus was the final act on God's part, and now the restoration was coming. The finality of God's rule, starting with and centering on Israel, was, was here. This is the end. But in reality, we're just beginning. See, when Jesus speaks to them about the kingdom of God, he's giving them a vision of something far greater than what they could possibly imagine. And then he gives them a part to play in the kingdom that they would have never guessed or taken on for themselves. Jesus says, it's not for you to know all of the things and the timing of of, of what God has planned. 
But know this, know this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, what's so audacious about this promise? Well, first we have to consider the audience. Think about the people Jesus is speaking with. These men are the very same men who scattered and ran when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? Peter denied him. Thomas doubted him. These men were at times ignorant and at other times arrogant. They are largely uneducated and generally weak and fallible. In other words, they're a lot like us. And so Jesus would know, of course, better than anybody that the assignment he's giving these guys right here is much too big for them. To be his chief witnesses to the world, Jesus surely knew not only their past, what they had already done in proving or failing to prove themselves, but Jesus would have known their future and all the ways that they will surely stumble and fall again. How prone these men were to failure. So what in the world is Jesus doing here telling them this great plan he has that he's going to use them for, well, he's not sending them on their own. And of course, that's the audacious promise. It's not so much that Jesus is saying, listen, you guys, I've invested in you and I trust you to do what's best. Right? No, he says something altogether different. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you meaning there's something that God is going to give them fit for the task. What Jesus is saying here more broadly is to the apostles, you will have divine knowledge and wisdom and strength and courage given to you. You will possess miraculous gifts and God-given directives. Your steps will be ordained. Your prayers will be answered. Why? Because the very power of God's Spirit will come upon you. That's an audacious promise because otherwise these men have no... The, the, the Christian story never gets off the ground if it's simply left to them and to us apart from the divine power of God at work. Now, it's also audacious because remember what the disciples were confused about. The question they ask him, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And look at what Jesus tells them in response. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, you will be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. The message of the kingdom will have no geographic or ethnic limitations, no such boundaries. God's grace is going to be made known the world over, starting with you guys. At that point, 11 guys. We'll see a 12th added next week. Here in Jerusalem is where it will start, but it will not terminate here or even in Israel or even among the Jews. No, the disciples are going to carry this thing out to all the nations. It's called the Great Commission. Now, maybe perhaps the disciples, with this audacious promise and plan that's being delivered to them, maybe they're thinking, okay, this is too much for us, but Jesus, as long as you're here, as long as you're right in front of us, Jesus, we can do this. Well, look at verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. 
and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. And he's gone. Now, this is what uh, we call the ascension of Christ. And y'all, I'll be honest to say, I have often overlooked this as mostly an interesting detail. I mean, he had to get back to heaven somehow, right? So he just floats on back up there, right? How else is he going to get there? Uh, he's lifted up into the clouds. But y'all, I want to encourage us this morning, perhaps to see this, maybe for the first time. The ascension of Christ is both pivotal and monumental. It means a lot more than what meets the eye. What does Jesus' ascension tell us? What is his ascending purpose here? Well, it means a lot of things. I'm going to show us just three things very briefly, only three. What does the ascension mean? Well, right here, as Jesus ascends into the clouds of heaven, he is, the scripture says, he is returning to the Father in glory. The scripture says that after Jesus suffered and died, he was then raised. And then, Philippians 2, God highly exalted him and seated him at his right hand in glory, far above, above every rule and power and dominion, and has given him the name which is above every name. Jesus' ascension is a clear reflection of his divine authority and power and glory. And so Jesus is ascending into the clouds as an expression of his divinity, his power, his authority over all things. Remember, if, if you do in Matthew 28, Jesus said to the disciples, just as he was being taken up into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and go therefore to make disciples. You know, this corresponds to the cloud here. It's not just the fact that there happened to be a cloud up in the sky. Y'all, you know, we studied uh, last year or, or two years ago, I don't know how long ago, we studied Exodus. Remember the cloud? that surrounded Mount Sinai, the cloud that governed the direction of God's people. It was the glory and the presence of God always before them. Jesus is ascending in glory because he is God. And that's why the angels say, don't keep looking up into the sky. But one day, just as he left in the clouds, he will return again. And that's a statement corresponding to the prophet Daniel that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of glory to rule over heaven and earth and to establish His righteousness forever. That's what the ascension means. And that's just one thing. The ascension means glory for Jesus. But it's also, and this is a little more counterintuitive, the ascension of Jesus also means intimacy with Jesus. Y'all remember maybe the night before Jesus died in the Gospel of John, he said to his disciples, we sang this in the first song, by the way. Jesus said to them, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. See, the ascension might appear to be Jesus leaving us to ourselves, abandoning the disciples, but in fact, it's the opposite. 
No, he's going to prepare a place for them. This is a statement of promise, of intimacy, of love, and of care. In fact, y'all, we saw this last semester. We studied through 1 John. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. What's he doing up there right now? Well, John tells us one thing Jesus is doing. Because he sits at the right hand of glory, he is now our advocate before the Father. Meaning, Jesus, right now, right where you sit, Jesus is forgiving your sin and cleansing you and me from all unrighteousness. Jesus is applying his grace to us moment by moment, over and over, because he loves us. Now, this is hard for us to fathom, I know. But the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, that means we don't have less of Jesus somehow. We actually have more. We have more of him than if he were standing here right in front of us. And that correlates now with the third uh, reality of the ascension. How is it that we have more of Jesus? Well, it comes in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The greatest of his promises here in his ascension. And this comes... Uh, it kind of harkens us back to some things that Jesus has already told us. In John chapter 7, Jesus is standing amongst a, a great crowd of people, and he calls out to the crowd with a loud voice. He says in John 7, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive... For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, Jesus gave a promise of a spiritual reality for everybody, not just the apostles, but for you and me. Anybody who comes to faith and trust in Him, the Holy Spirit will become in us like rivers of living water flowing from our innermost being. What a promise. But this gift will only come after Jesus suffers and then is raised and then is glorified. Now think about the apostles who received this word directly. John chapter 14, another of Jesus' promise concerning this. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 14, 12, he who believes in me, the work that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Then again in John 16, but I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see how important the ascension is. Now come back to Acts chapter 1. The risen Jesus is meeting with his apostles. He's gathered them together. He says, stay here in Jerusalem, and wait for what the Father has promised. For you will be baptized, not many days from now, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then He ascends into glory. Jesus goes to the Father just as He promised He would, and He said it was necessary, the final act now, before the sending of the Spirit. Now, y'all, it's safe to guess that even at this point, the apostles don't really know what they're about to get themselves into. They're not really sure what's coming their way. And perhaps the prospect of doing anything now that Jesus has left them is very daunting to them. But y'all, at this point in the narrative, even so early on in Acts, here's what they do have. They have a risen Savior 
of whom they are all witnesses. They have a promise from Jesus that He will be with them. He is not leaving them, but He will be with them even to the end of the age, He says in Matthew 28. They have a purpose to go out into the world as His witnesses sharing the powerful gospel of His grace. And in order to share that powerful gospel, they're going to receive actual power within themselves. The very Spirit of God will come upon them and will dwell within them to accomplish all that God has planned. And y'all, everything we're going to read in the coming weeks here in the book of Acts, it all accords with this divine plan of God's. God's power in His people will accomplish His purpose according to His promise. God's power in His people will accomplish His purpose according to His promise. And here's what I want to tell us, Harvest Church, right here and now, that hasn't changed. You, we'll see this as we go. Not everything in the book of Acts is meant to be repeatable. Some of it is just unique. The, nobody here is an apostle. Those guys were unique in their calling and appointment. But the overall grace of God at work in the world that we read about here in Acts, nothing has changed about that. Here we are, y'all, almost 2,000 years removed from this. We're on the complete opposite side of the world, and yet God's calling right here upon His people is evergreen. It hasn't changed. One jot or tittle, not one T or I, has been left uncrossed or undotted. This mission we see right here is our mission to share. Every believer in Jesus Christ possesses the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Every one of us, if you trust Him. The Spirit is yours and you are His. Every believer has been given the purpose of making disciples from among all the nations. Aaron preached this two weeks ago. I preached it again last week. We're preaching it again. And chances are you'll hear it again next week too. Every single believer has been given this purpose to make disciples. And every believer stands firmly on the promise that Jesus Christ is with us always until He comes again on the clouds of glory. He is with us to fulfill His purpose in us. And so Acts is the story of God continued. And the book has not been closed on this yet because Jesus has not come back. We are living in the reality of the continued and ongoing mission of Jesus Christ building His church. What Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospels, He more abundantly continues now through His people and through His church in the spreading of His grace and the building up of His kingdom. And so this is, the, this is why I say this, this book, Acts, is so absolutely relevant for us right here where we sit as we study it, the promise that Jesus gives the apostles here today and the overarching goal of the promise, His purpose and His power on display in the world. Y'all, this is the reason any of us are here right now. And, and so often we can't see the bigger picture because we only see through our own two eyes and our own family history. But y'all, we have to consider the fact that the good news of salvation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins that people might be reconciled to God, that good news has indeed gone out to the remotest part of the earth. 
just as Jesus promised it would. Y'all, what's more remote than the old shoe gallery in Ridgeland, Mississippi? Tell me. Some of y'all used to shop here. And yet, listen, in so many ways, just as it was then, this great divine work, this great promise and purpose of God worked out through us. It's only beginning. What we saw last week from John 4 is relevant to us. Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. The harvest is ripe and ready. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That carries on. And so we have this mantle now as his disciples. What we read about in Acts is not just interesting history. It is an ongoing narrative of God's grace lived out now, person to person in all the world as we are sent out into his harvest, possessing his divine power that we might share his saving grace with the world. And so this is, as we enter in this morning to this great book, the narrative is only now just beginning. And what we see is, is frankly, it's, it's mind-blowing. The work of God through ordinary people, week after week, will marvel at it. But I hope also, beginning today and week after week, we'll marvel at the fact that ordinary people like us get to and must participate. God has given us the very same spirit, the very same purpose, and the very same promise. And so I want us this morning to pray in anticipation that the Spirit of God would enliven us just as He empowers us to enter into this great story that he is still writing even today. Would you do that with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for us, for me, Father, that you would give us a, a, a deep and precious reflection this morning on how we got here that somebody somewhere brought us to church, invited us to church, that we listened to a sermon, we opened up a Bible that we were given as a gift. We had somebody sit down with us and share with us the hope in them. We had a mom or a dad or a grandparent. We had somebody who labored in the harvest for our sake so that this, this ancient message of a risen Savior somehow made it from Jerusalem to me all these years later. Father, will you help us this, this morning reflect with gratitude that we are saved by your grace and that we, we have the privilege of hearing of your grace and being refreshed in it. And Father, with this I pray today, Lord, you would light up the fire in us and fan it into a great flame among us. That the very thing someone once did for us, Father, you have handed us the same purpose, the same spirit, governed by the same promise. That, Lord, if we will share your grace, if we will speak of the person of Jesus Christ, and his mercy to save, that others may indeed come to know him in the same way.
that we get to be, Father, your witnesses. And it's a concrete witness, Lord. We serve a living Savior. And I pray, Father, that we would live lives that essentially serve as proof that He is alive. As people witness in us the transforming love that has taken a hold of our hearts, that as people see in us the kind of fruit that only a divine spirit could produce, and that as people hear from us a message that is the very fragrant aroma that draws them to Jesus Christ, something so radical and wonderful that it must be accepted or rejected. It can't simply be nodded at. If, if you sent your son for the sake of the world, Lord, let that be the most precious, joyful, urgent message, Father, we could ever share. Thank you that what we read of Jesus Christ in his ministry is only what he began to do that it continues on, both in Acts and even now. Lord, make us a part, a vibrant part of your great mission for the world. Lord, thank you that we get to look over Luke's shoulder and, and witness this for ourselves. But Lord, I pray we wouldn't remain in the gallery, in the, in the bleachers. Put us in the game, Lord. Let us live as those you have loved and saved and sent back out. Let that be our heart, Father. Even if we don't know how yet, let it be our heart to ask for it and to determine to do it. We ask in Jesus' name today. Amen.